I don't ask anybody's question but yours. You're an idiot. And really a disloyal person. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Disloyal Idiots podcast here on the Fans First Sports Network, your Syracuse Orange podcast for all the things relating to Syracuse Orange. And for the past couple of weeks, the ACC, I'm Christian Guzman alongside Andy Pregler and Dominic Schwone, our good old friend from our sister site at NoonsMagician.com. Gentlemen, we're going west. All the way to Western Michigan. Well, actually, this time. They're coming to us. Uh, I am kind of bummed. I have a friend who lives literally from the Kalamazoo area. He grew up a giant Western Michigan fan and a Tim Lester fan. Loved the Syracuse-Tim Lester rivalry that is now dead. Um, as Tim Lester is no longer the head coach of Western Michigan, which is still something that I have to wrap my head around. <laughs> I would say it would be good to have this second game, by the way, just to see if we can actually cover the, what is it, 20 and a half underdog spread that uh, Western Michigan will face. So it's good to see we'll have another FBS opponent that's easy on the on the lineup. Yeah, I, I think we were, uh, we can just kind of jump into this a bit is I know that this is a Syracuse podcast, but I think one of the things that we just kind of have to take a look at is that this first week of college football, man, the Orange's schedule somehow, we knew going into the season was soft. Um, like right now, according to Bill Connolly's SP Plus, before this, before week one happened, Syracuse only had six teams projected to even come close to six wins on the schedule. And I don't know about y'all, but I'm looking at this schedule going, it just got significantly easier because Wake really struggled with Elon, which is not a power FCS team. I know Georgia Tech looked good against Louisville, but that was more Louisville looking bad than Georgia Tech doing anything spectacular. BC lost to Northern Illinois, and I have them on upset watch this week to Holy Cross. Uh, this, I mean, Pitt and, and UNC and Clemson and Florida State all look to be the real deals. Those four games are still remarkably terrifying. Um, but yeah, army was also having a really hard time transitioning away from the triple. I feel like, uh, my, my big takeaway from week one, aside from the cues of it all is that at this point in time, it really does feel like if this team doesn't get to six wins, it is a tremendous failure, uh, on the part of this team. Dom, you want to reference what you posted in our Slack earlier today? Oh, just well, to what? Show, just to show how much easier quote unquote, this schedule has gotten based on this first week of college football. Well, I can pull it up that, um, that our FPI rating is that that what you were referring yes, to. The I F- am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, Scott Ruffridge dropped this, uh, a tweet that said Syracuse is now up to 26th on ESPN's FPI and their projected win toll is now above eight, which is crazy. Cause all of our, uh, if I'm mistaken, nobody in the, uh, the Troy uh, Nunes team picked Syracuse to go above nine wins or more. I think we were all between six and eight wins. And Andy, I'm on the same boat as you. I think a big takeaway from this week one is, first off, it's good to have Syracuse football back being a student. Like, the Dome was rocking, even though that it's one of those games where it was over by halftime. The student section was still pretty pretty loud, pretty ridiculous. But the other thing is, I think you look at the next couple games with Purdue also losing. You look at some of these games down the road in the ACC. Syracuse, like, I, we just did, we just, I just did a story on 
kind of what the, the state of the, the coach Babers talk is for after this year. And it's clear, like there's a very good pathway here for seven, seven wins at the very least. I don't know if Christian, you're in the same boat or not. I know you're the, the pessimist of the group, but <laughs> yeah, because I was flipping between six and six and five and seven on my records, but after seeing this performance, which, yes, it's against Colgate, who is not projected to finish very high up in the Patriot League. It's going to be one of the lower tier FCS programs this year. And and given the other you know, results, like you said, Western Michigan, even though they won against St. Francis, they're still only 110 in ESPN's FPI. Purdue lost to Fresno. Army lost to ULM. Like, there is a... There is a all of a sudden, their spots for concern early in this schedule before that three-game stretch of Clemson, UNC, and FSU suddenly get less concerning, which is very, very good for Syracuse because you need those four games to tune up for that three-game stretch. I, th- I think one of the arguments I brought up, so I was in charge of the seven and five piece of the case, why would that happen? And my kind of philosophy was trying to figure out would Syracuse start off three and one with the one loss being to Purdue or would they start out four and no and then maybe drop either the Virginia Tech game after that horrible gauntlet in October or would it be like Wake Forest game because randomly but you based off the results from week one obviously the sample size is incredibly low I think that Purdue game even if it's on the road looks a lot more manageable for Syracuse to win and I think that will set up nicely because even if the Orange were to drop three or four in a row in October, that still leaves you the BC game. It still leaves you the Georgia Tech game. It leaves you a Wake Forest home game to cap off either game to six, seven, maybe even eight wins. So even if the pick game in Yankee Stadium turns into a dud, because we always struggle with pit in recent years, there's some cushion to kind of do what we did last season in the sense of get enough wins early so that injuries and wear and tear, I think, don't become as big of a problem later on in the second half of that schedule. Yeah, I'm I again, we're getting we're getting pretty ahead of ourselves in terms of health because I think that's probably the biggest thing and that's uh, I think a great segue into kind of the Colgate game because the offensive performance absolutely great. I loved seeing um, you know, the offense really perform well against a bad unit. Um, same thing on the defense. I thought the defense looked good and did some great scheme things. We can jump into that later, but I think like from start to finish, the biggest questions and the biggest concerns that I had were all around health. Um, both the offensive line and the secondary, uh, dealt with some injuries there. Uh, the, the offensive line in particular, the, the players who didn't dress surprised me to be completely frank. Like I, I thought I knew, um, that when we were talking about, uh, last week on the podcast, like we were talking about guys who were on the second line of the two deep that we thought were not going to play because while it would make sense, like Kalen Ellis, you know, there had been some reports that he was injured, made sense that he wouldn't play. Um, but man, I thought that there were many points in time, especially early on when that offensive line was getting caved in, in a not healthy way. And you saw that the way that Syracuse was really able to do well on the ground was by doing a lot of very traditional old school running techniques where you are pulling guards and you're creating misdirection and you're taking the defenses over aggressiveness uh, as a weapon. And that's great and all. Like I do think from a scheme point, 
point, Chris Beck gets a ton of credit for for Chris implementing Beck? those things. Chris, not Chris, sorry, geez, not Chris Beck. Uh, Who's Chris every, Beck? Yeah, geez, uh, baseball stuff. That let's just I've I've been spending too much time and playing MLB the show. Um, oh, are you making? Are you practicing for an immaculate grid runner later tonight? No, unfortunately, I'm I'm done to the year 2040 in MLB the Show franchise mode, so mm. I'm at full all creative player modes. Um, <laughs> I feel that no, I'm, in, J- I'm I'm in tw- I'm in 2030 in my in my franchise mode right now. There we go. So yeah, uh, the the, uh, the the back offense did really well with what I saw on many pass plays was just especially that right side of the line was just getting caved in very quickly. Um, and I do think that when the, you know, we're expecting Ellis to come back and get inserted into that offensive line, he would go onto that right side. And then maybe you, you move Bleich over to the left. Um, but yeah, Christian, other, I knew that this, this, I, this was a good, kind of, what was that? You do it the other way around because Ellis was the, I, I, I mean, yes, I, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I don't know if I like that, but yeah, I, I'm just kind of curious. This was something that you had kind of called out going into the season as a way to temper expectations because you were not a huge fan of the way things were looking um, on the line. And I don't necessarily think anything that happened in this game would really reassure you if the offensive line is the reason that you're hesitant to say that this orange team can win eight games. And when you think about one of the other big storylines from this game, penalties uh, played a huge factor, played a huge factor, and like maybe a little bit of resentment from Syracuse fans in terms of the great win that the Orange achieved against Colgate. You know, two of those penalties were false starts against Chris Bleich, who is your most senior offensive lineman, and like Dino has always been. Like the one thing he doesn't want to see is penalties. And Syracuse was the most penalized team in the FBS last year. And now it, it, it was a uh, six, six penalties for like 70 yards against Colgate or roughly exactly. around there. So yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. And actually I have the box score up here. Let's pull it up right now because it was not pretty just in general for, in terms of on offense, some of those, and then also on special teams, like, there were a string of multiple um, stops on pet in um, in terms of uh, special teams. I'll look at. No, I'll actually look that up later. But it, if you want to put Ellis back in, I could see Andy's argument for putting him on the right side just to give a little bit of stability on that right side, like you said, because what we saw from Jacob Bradford and David Wallabaugh Jr. wasn't necessarily the best. But then again, the line in general wasn't necessarily the best. I think. As what most people thought, the one constant that felt like was solid was Enrique Cruz, which I think we all expected was going to be basically Matthew Bergeron 2.0 of that one guy you can slot in at the blind side and let's sit and forget. Those pockets collapsed really quickly, just in general, and that's going to be a problem, especially against those four top teams that we mentioned in the ACC, Clemson, USC, FSU, and Pitt, because those defenses are going to collapse incredibly, incredibly quickly. And the positive that you can take away from that also, from this also, is that Schrader's legs, at the very minimum, 
look like they're underneath him, which is just a huge thing. Because last year, when Schrader returned from his injury, one of the biggest downsides of his return was that his mobility wasn't there because of the supposed lower body injury that he had suffered. And because his mobility wasn't there, it was much easier for teams to contain him and force him into suboptimal situations where he would have used his mobility to a greater extent. Here against Colgate, yes, it was Colgate. It's an inferior defense, but he still escaped the pressure of a collapsing pocket really well. And then something I also tweeted out that um, a lot of people seem to agree with is that Schreider kept his eyes downfield a lot as well. He didn't uh, immediately tuck and run once he escaped the pocket, which is what we saw a lot from him over the past two years. Yes, there were still a couple of those plays, but it felt more like a 60-40 in terms of him keeping his eyes downfield, except with that instead of that percentage flipping the other way in previous seasons. And that's also a good sign because it makes teams have to respect that option of him throwing outside the pocket even more so, as, long, as well as his ability to tuck and run. So there are ways to mitigate the quote-unquote rough offensive line performance that we saw on, on Saturday. But against the better teams, that's your only cause for concern right now, hopefully. I, I think unless there's anything else on the offensive line, Christian, one of the things that kind of correlates with that is going to be, like you said, Schrader's ability to move out of the pocket because it's watching all the games last year in the first half of the season, he was super mobile, great decision-maker. But then once the injuries came about, especially once you got to the Notre Dame game, the Florida State game, it was a completely different Garrett Schrader. And you kind of, I think, saw being in the stadium, he had not only the quickness, he had the ability to – I think he's gotten more disciplined over the offseason with instead of just keeping his eyes on one receiver, he's actually surveying the field and giving himself time. And that's including buying him out of the pocket. Coming in as, you know, all the reps he's gotten the past couple of years in his third season, I guess two and a half seasons now as a starter, because he got that little half season 21. He looks having him bring so much stability and value to the offense. And I think something else that was really, I think, great to see for Syracuse fans about this offense, one of the things that stood out was the amount of uh, receiving options. When you looked at four different touchdowns for Garrett Schrader, all the four different receivers went out and looked good. And I think the some of the parts on that, I think will help to mitigate some of those offensive line concerns. Because clearly on offense, that's the biggest hole. But I think there's way more depth. I think, Stephen, Christian, you both brought this up on a previous pod, that the depth that receivers noticeably better than in recent years. And I think that's definitely going to help just to give Schrader more options to – get bailed out when the line collapses. Yeah, I I thought that that was probably the the two uh the two things that I thought were like the biggest positives to take away on the offensive side of the ball um outside of the quarterback play. Uh LaQuint Allen looked like everything that the Orange will need out of that position. But the receiver room in general looked significantly stronger. Like Damian Alford was doing a lot of the things that we've been asking him to do for years at this point in time. Um, you know, Aranda Gatson Jr. was a matchup nightmare the the entire game, and it was really obvious that there were they were trying to get other bodies involved in the offensive scheme just based off of the routes that were being run. Um, 
And, and what I really liked about it, specifically from an X's and O's standpoint, was we have seen Syracuse really struggle when you have a wide receiver, a singular threat at wide receiver, and maybe one other supporting piece, and that wide receiver only operates at one level. Like, like you know, we've seen wide receivers that can only run the go routes. We've seen wide receivers that are only good in the slot from five yards in and under. Um, Aronde Gatson is probably the best wide receiver that we've had on campus in at least my lifetime uh, of being a Syracuse fan. Um, and Gatson can operate at all three levels, but he's really the most effective in that like 10 to 20 yard slot, like just being a big body creating matchup nightwares over the middle, which is incredibly valuable. But you saw Damian Alford be able to stretch the field. You saw other uh, players get involved in the shorter routes. You also saw Alford get involved in the, in the shorter routes and then turn on the jets and run. And it was, it's just like this idea that if one of the, one of the things that, um, you know, you heard when those coaches surveys came out, you know, as the season goes on and coaches were talking about Syracuse, one of the things that they always gave Syracuse even last year was that the offensive scheme was very predictable because it was really obvious that when a certain player was doing a certain thing, they were trying to get to a very, it was like very Kevin Durant ask. You're trying to just get to your one spot on the floor, on the field to do that one thing that you're very good at. The difference is that none of the guys on the field were as talented as Kevin Durant, where they can make that shot consistently over and over again. Uh, this year, it seems like at least so far, even in just this one game with a very stripped back offense, Beck did a fantastic job of working the scheme to be far more unpredictable. And I think that is going to pay off when you play those bigger teams that can't just sit back and wait for the same Syracuse, you know, comfort food play every game. It'll really take it. It'll really help when we're in those tight shootout games and we need to keep scoring points in some way, shape or form. Um, It's giving me a lot of optimism from a schematic standpoint. Again, my concerns are mostly around the execution side um, because if the offensive line isn't there, it doesn't really matter if you've got guys running at all three levels of a route tree, you're not going to be able to get the ball to them. And also on the execution side, Schrader was still a little hit and miss on his deep balls. Some of them were good. Some of them weren't great. And those uh, those deep balls, those those accuracy issues were mainly down the sideline, which has also always been a concern about Schrader, um, those deep ball accuracy down the sideline. But as we saw from last year, and um, what Beck stuck to is that the plays that Trader excels in are those throws over the middle. Of course, they're usually the gats at him, but you saw a number of people get involved there. A little bit of Isaiah Jones, a little bit of Alford, um, Donovan Brown, who immediately proved that, yeah, he earned his spot on the two deep with a couple of good routes and good catches. Uh, the scheme is set up for Schrader to have the most success, and the wide receivers are being put in positions to make Schrader successful. And what is also helping with that is continuity, which is something the broadcast brought up and something that I think is really important to bring up as well, is that the, one, of the, one of the lesser things that we've kind of talked about this year, but should be also a big thing, is that this is Schrader's fifth offensive coordinator in as many years. Now, it's a little bit different because Jason Beck learned under Robert and I, and 
you would uh, work under the assumption that Beck's play calling style would be very similar, if not almost exactly the same, to Anais. So there's at least a a hint of consistency there, and that looked to be true because that was basically a nice game plan last year. It was to set up routes over the middle for Schrader to easily hit, and that's what Beck did to really set Schrader up for success. And I think we'll see more of that. And now that you seemingly have a multitude of receivers that you can turn to, not just Gatson, who can run those routes over the middle, that also opens up options for Syracuse. One thing that was not done enough that I think kind of will, I think, I think Coach Babers will kind of tap into this eventually was the Quint Allen as a receiving option. Because if you've got sets where it's Gadsden, Al Ford, maybe another receiver, and then him, suddenly you've got, you know, three or four playmakers who can catch the ball. And once they get it, they can just go. That's, I think, something that's going to be a part of what Andy said that diversity of the offense. It's something that, Things Syracuse struggled with last year because once it was Gadsden, there wasn't really that consistent number two. If Alford can be that, or if somebody else can kind of keep up the load and you have like a 2A, 2B receiving duo where one of them can just get hot, suddenly you open the door for Gadsden. I think something else I'd be interested to see is where the touch is going to go for receivers because Gadsden was uh, Schrader's first target on his first five throws and then seven of his first eight. But then after that, the floor was open up. So is that going to be kind of the same pattern we see? Is it going to kind of be more of a balance sheet? Obviously, Gatson's your one number one receiver that Schrader will target from start to finish. But the way in which those passes are distributed up will be something very fascinating that the Colgate game kind of hinted at. Yeah, I I thought that that was a really interesting. Like, if you look at the stat sheet, like Gatson was obviously really busy, but Gatson obviously did not finish with the most passing yards, and and he did get a touchdown. It felt like they were just kind of giving him touches early to give him the touches early, kind of do the, you know, look, we know that you're the guy. We want you to feel like you're the guy. Um, my, my gut read on things is that teams are going to make it harder to get the ball into his hands, but there are very few teams that can really match up in a way to take him out of the game uh, on a one-on-one level. It's you really have to in order to remove Gadsden from plays, you have to you have to run some some really good zones. And again, that's what we were talking about earlier, where that depth of of receiving talent comes into play, because I think that's what we saw later on as the game went on is as the as Colgate started dropping into a more easy uh, keyed in on a Gadsden zone everybody else became far more open and you saw Schrader making very easy pitches and catches towards the sidelines with other players as Gadsden drew attention to clog the zone in the middle of the field. Um, I, I, I can't, I don't want to get overexcited by beating, you know, they beat Colgate. They set all these offensive records, but they still won 65 to nothing in a week where a lot of teams couldn't do that against pretty bad competition. So it does feel like there is a lot of positives that can be taken out of this game um, on the offensive side of the ball. Well, based off the results, Christian, this ties into what you wrote during the preview. It, it like it felt like Syracuse had to get like 50 points or at least like 45 and if it wasn't, that'd be kind of scary. So getting to 65 and not only that, I think Carlos Del Rio Wilson looked good off the bench. I think, we talked about the receivers already and like just the promise of what this offense can be at its full potential. 
I think that we could say that you factor that in with how the rest of the ACC did, and it's definitely toward the top. It's not that it's definitely above the pack, and I think that's a good sign heading into week two. Agreed. Uh, one of the things that I did want to kind of touch on, I thought that the Rocky Long defense was fundamentally different than the Tony White defense in some really interesting ways. Um, the defensive side of the ball was far more aggressive than we've ever seen under Tony White. Um, there were so many looks where they were packing the box and they didn't always blitz, you know, six or seven. Uh, but the packages were, but the blitzes were coming from very weird angles. They were setting up a lot of, you know, ed edge rushes, not necessarily done by a traditional edge rusher. And the other thing that I thought was really interesting, and maybe you do this against Colgate. I don't know if you do this for other teams, but when when Colgate was putting guys in motion, Syracuse would have somebody coming from the second or the third level that was clearly designated as that as the man marker for that guy and just put the ears back and ran straight at the motion guy. And there were a couple of times where uh, Colgate gave the ball to the motion man and Syracuse was in the backfield, but it wasn't one of the designated rushers. It was that person coming from the second or third level at a full speed as soon as the guy was put in motion. I thought that was something that we've never – Syracuse really struggled with those plays last year on defense because, Christian, to your point uh, that you always like to harp on, Syracuse was very comfortable kind of sitting back in a zone and limiting the damage in front. But when you played against faster teams, they were able to get ahead of steam and, you know, make a cut, make a second cut, and, and get to the, you know, five, six, seven yards on a play that could have been blown up in the backfield. This felt like a radically different approach to containing these types of offenses. And I am fascinated to see if this continues against Western Michigan, against Army, and then eventually once we hit that heart of the schedule when you're playing insanely talented athletic offenses like Clemson, Florida State, and uh, UNC. And that brings up two key players that I think will be key to making this defense continue to work. That's Elijah Clark and Leon Lowry. Because to your point, Andy, that guy who was the man marking in motion from the secondary was usually Elijah Clark. And Elijah Clark is a freak athlete. And so he has that ability to not to man mark a guy in motion. And then once the ball is snapped, put his head down and charge at him. And that's what we saw basically throughout the entire first half. Was Clark was not afraid to get involved in literally every single play um, to the point where he got injured on the first drive. Um, and luckily came back and continued to play with that same reckless abandon that he showed on that first play of the game. So the fact that he showed not only the athletic ability to keep up with the guy in motion, but then to cut them off and pop them with a pretty good hit is pretty impressive for a guy in the secondary who started out as a cornerback and now is a safety. Um, and he'll be very, very important to that working. And then because of that unique blitzing style that you mentioned, Andy, it opens up the key of the three, three, five to go to work. And that's the linebackers. And that's where you saw, I think Leon Lowry, the reason why Leon Lowry got the nod to, uh, be the starting linebacker over maybe other guys like a, uh, an Anwar Sparrow or a Stefan Thompson because Lowry has 
got explosive speed off the snap. And that was shown in great, great effect on on Saturday. And his skills, I think, are going to be very, very crucial to disrupt the backfield. That's what we saw last year in his unlimited spurts. And I think he'll be that guy that, you know, people are going to focus on Marlowe Wax. That's going to be the thing. And despite that, Wax still finished with six tackles and a sack. Um which was second on the team in terms of tackles. Because teams are going to inevitably focus on Lowry, on Wax, that's going to give Lowry the opportunity to have one-on-one matchups or hit holes. And he's going to be very, 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 very fun to watch. The the defense, Izu, was an A-plus performance. What was it, like 106 total yards for Colgate? Didn't have a throw higher than like 10 yards maybe. I think the big thing that uh, Christian, you know, is going to be, and also Andy, is the pressure on the line is something that really hasn't been seen. If you compare it to last year, last year was way more of like kind of full steam ahead, running, run down the middle, and we kind of just couldn't keep up athletically. What Long has done is not only put more pressure in the pocket and basically force these teams, it's forced Colgate into a scrambling situation, they're also putting just pure athletes at the linebacker spot and saying cover as much field as you can. I think when you look at a guy like Elijah Clark, especially on the kind of outside playing playing the playing coverage, those types of guys are probably going to be the biggest X factor for Syracuse's defense because it looks like they're going to be able to put pressure on the quarterback. It looks like they're going to have the athleticism to cover the middle of the field. Do they have enough bodies against these talented ACC receivers? to go one-on-one or to go in a bigger zone. And I think that's going to be a big question mark because we saw literally first play Clark goes down, the whole student section's like in a gas because one injury like that and suddenly you're changing the game forever. And I, but I think so far defensively, I think that was the type of performance that Syracuse, I would argue that was more impressive than the 65 points was the zero against Colgate because it showed that there was some continuity, but also some different innovations with that defense that I think could take the orange far this year. You do not know how vindicated I felt went on Jeremiah Wilson's uh, interception and watching it back, seeing both cornerbacks pressing at the line of scrimmage (laughs) and playing man defense. It was glorious. Well, because too many times, I remember too many times last year, especially second half, there was just so many, it's kind of like a, I mean, not to use a Bayheim reference, but it was kind of like playing the two-three zone. And all the three-pointers were open. It kind of was like that, where it's like the same spots always on the defense were open, especially on those deeper routes or kind of the first cut. And it was not the case against Colgate. Last year, you have freak athletes and Garrett Williams and Deuce Chestnut, and you have them lining up ten yards behind the line of scrimmage and then playing soft zone contains on the sideline. What are you doing? <laughs> This is what you should have been doing with them in the first place. I'm I I love that you know we bring in the 74-year-old defensive coordinator and all of a sudden we're getting these radical new concepts that uh <laughs> are, are making us all excited. We got we had to get this, rid of one this 70 is where year we have old to, be, to bring in a new 70-year-old. This is where we have to be careful because in a weird twist of in a weird turn of events. In a couple of years, Audrey's going to hire Beheim as an assistant coach. <laughs> uh, the uh, the defense, literally, as a defensive specialist. Yeah. Um, this is actually, he's going to hire him as a graduate assistant. 
<laughs> yeah, Bayham could use another degree from Syracuse. Uh, you know what you could also use another of? Another home field apparel t-shirt. Uh, it's halftime, so we're going to shout out our sponsors, Home Field Apparel, makers of the finest vintage collegiate apparel this side uh, of your favorite college football team. Head over to homefieldapparel.com to check out all of their t-shirts, hoodies, joggers, dad hats, whatever you could possibly want. Uh, they will have it in your favorite team with some vintage apparel. Uh, if you use promo code NOONS23, N-U-N-E-S-2-3, you get 15% off your first order at Home Field Apparel. Uh, we are super excited to see what Home Field keeps rolling out. They just celebrated their fifth birthday and have an entire fifth birthday collection over on the site Definitely check it out. And again, thanks to Connor and the team for continuing to sponsor uh, this show. Gentlemen, the... uh, before, before we oh. move on, I would do, we, we do want to shout out one more thing because we do still oh, yes. have a giveaway from our friends at Fans for Sports Network. Because I know many of you are fans of the NFL. If you're a fan of college football, probably are a fan of the NFL. And probably some of you want to go watch your favorite team play in week one of the NFL, which is starting just next week. And if you want to do that, you're in luck because Fans for Sports Network is giving away four free tickets to any week one NFL game of your choice up to $5,000. If you want to enter, the rules are simple. All you have to do is go to contest.fansforsports.com. Again, that's contest.fansforsports.com. Fill out the appropriate information on that website. That's it. You're entered to register to win those four free tickets to any one of those week one NFL games up to $5,000. The contest ends tomorrow on September 4th. If you're watching this live on the stream right now, and ends tomorrow on September 4th. That is Monday. And if you're reading this on our, if you're listening to this on your podcast platform or choice, the day it comes out, literally today is your last day to enter this contest again it's contest.fansforsports.com fill out the appropriate information and you have a chance to win four free tickets to the week one nfl game of your choice up to five thousand dollars really cool opportunity there i'm really excited to get some loyal listeners uh some uh, really great experiences thanks to our newest friends uh, so with that, gentlemen, as we look at the Syracuse Orange, they are now going to face their first, not real test, but they're going to go up against a, a different type of opponent. They're going up against a Western Michigan team that, to be completely frank, uh, did not look as impressive as you would have hoped to against St. Francis, uh, Red Flash. They are a uh, FCS opponent. Went out to Kalamazoo. Western Michigan won 35-17. to 17. Uh, It was 21-10 to 10 at the half. Not a dominating performance from uh, our friends in the MAC. Uh, they are going to be coming to the Dome. And I think the expectation here is that Syracuse should handle Western Michigan. As, as Dom mentioned, we are looking at a 20-point spread going into this game. Uh, I think that 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 feels pretty accurate. Um, however, I am somewhat intrigued to see how the orange do respond after a week like the one they just had, because for the most part, we knew the offensive line injuries coming into the game. It, obviously, Clark got dinged up with a concussion and you hope that there are no lingering impacts there. Um, but 
by my count, there weren't any other like obvious severe injuries that came out of this game. That doesn't mean that there won't be more injuries that we get updated on um, throughout the week. But it seems as if the Orange escaped Colgate unscathed and now have an opportunity to once again define what how excited our expectations should be for this team. And just a note, I don't think Clark actually had a concussion. I think they just went into the medical check to check what looked like his right arm. That's what at least the broadcast reported, is that um, they were they were like removing the bands on his right arm and over his shoulder area and looking there. But obviously, it was good enough to return. Um, and I don't think he would have returned that quickly to the game. He was only out for like a drive if he had any sort of concussion symptoms. So I don't think he had sustained any head injury like that. Um but to get back to the crux of the issue, like I think the only like main concern that you have for this Western Michigan game is something that kind of cropped up towards the end of the season last year, and that was run defense. You didn't really have, really didn't get tested run defense wise against Colgate, and Jalen Buckley for Western Michigan had 194 yards on 30 rushes. That's an average of 6.5 yards per play, and so. How well can you contain a guy who put that up? Yes, against albeit an FCS opponent, but still put up nearly 200 yards of rushing offense by himself. And we saw Syracuse struggle mightily with containing the rush last year. See Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. It's it's a um, it was an area that while the defense held as strong as it could last year, despite all the injuries eventually led to them tiring out down the stretch. And so and so Syracuse can bottle up Buckley, then you start to feel very, very, very good about how Syracuse is going to perform against the brunt of the ACC. Yeah, no, I think probably, probably run defense might be the biggest asset. If we're going to keep things on the defense, I'd say Colgate, as much as we shut them out, they also, from a passing side of things didn't really do much there so i think maybe getting some more some people pointed this out in the comments and i mentioned it in the uh takeaways piece seeing against western michigan do they air the ball out more and if so can we get some more reps with some of the cornerbacks and the safeties i think overall we the offense we clearly understand we love it so far we know the concerns of the offensive line i think defense is going to be where we kind of want to see what else this team has to offer especially because again when you bring in the long three three five defense that it's so new. That's what people are gravitating toward. I think that's similar in my boat of let's see what else this defense can do against a different opponent. Yeah, I, I think that those are all really – I think those are good call-outs. Um, I think the other the other one that I am somewhat interested in here is the fact that um, – as we take a look at this at this orange team and as we get a better feel for the offense, it does seem as if LaQuint Allen is going to get most of the carries. Jawar uh, Jordan came in for Jawar Jordan. Jeez. Not George. Um, Where are you? Sorry. 2019? Nope. I was thinking of John. I was thinking John Price. There we go. <laughs> um came in for a few a few snaps yeah my brain is 20 2019 uh, listen there's a lot of names that you do not that i take up a lot of brain space that i can't i can't remember my my wife's phone number but i can remember that i can remember George. George. Now, that's a problem uh, you need to actually work on we can't yeah, help you, uh, there. you you need to work on that <laughs> yeah obviously uh but yeah but when we're talking about uh the rest of the running back room like i had some high hopes for everybody else but especially price because 
change of pace backs are, are important. It did not look like had a whole lot of awareness or ability to hit the hole hard um, in the way that Allen was. And I feel like Allen is going to be the primary back in the way that Tucker was the primary back last year, um, which is obviously good because he's a very good player. But I am, that does obviously concern me a bit as we go up against tougher opposition. Um, obviously, maybe it was just a bad day. There was something going on there. But I am I want to see a little bit more out of the running game, not necessarily in terms of scheme, but just other bodies to see if we are really, if the running back room is just LaQuint Allen or, or, and, or bust. Ike Daniels looked pretty good, yes, albeit against Colgate's second stringers. But, you know, he looked, you know, pretty nice. And Alman and Daniels subscribed to the school of talented New Jersey running backs. Let's go Jersey. So, <laughs> okay, I, I have to rep at some point, okay? And, like, Sy- Sy- Syracuse clearly did something to, you know, say, Garden State, you, that's what we want. That might be a, you know, a a result of their new tight ends coach, but you know, <laughs> same thing. And yeah, it's, um, and so Daniels actually looked pretty decent. Yes. Against uh, Colgate second stringers, but Bryce had a couple of series against the first stringers because what we thought about um, in a preseason was that, you know, you, you can't just survive on having one running back in this day and age of modern football. And we've seen that in the NFL and that's, you know, trickled down to college football as well. So having Sean Tucker out there for every series is something that Syracuse is no longer, no longer has the luxury of because while LeCun Allen is pretty good, he doesn't have the same type of body or stamina that Sean Tucker clearly does. So the thing that you have to hope for is that price can actually be some sort of stopgap in between because if Price and or Daniels doesn't develop the run the same way that Allen had Allen showed, at least in the uh, in the Colgate game, then you fall into the problem of what Andy said earlier in this in this podcast, where coaches said Syracuse becomes predictable because you already know Syracuse isn't throwing to the tight end, still didn't throw to the tight end in this game, and then if you can eliminate the need for having to really tunnel in on the rush, especially in the RPO game, then it opens up more options to, you know, cover the wide receivers that need to be covered. And so to develop Price and Daniels as respected options when you have to rotate Allen out is going to be very important against the ACC. It makes sense concerning that when we did the – it was the pod like a month or two ago about like the whole the Quinn Allen situation and then his eventual return, of course, to the team. The big question mark would be what were some of those options looking like? Daniels, as you guys said, looked really good. I think Price definitely – he was uh, below average, but, you know, you give him the more reps, hopefully against Western Michigan, maybe he can shine there. But it definitely does show that without Allen, there are – it's probably a big question mark of who can kind of step up. Because I think if you, if you lose Allen, you're kind of losing – you're not only losing, of course, like you're obviously your your best rushing target, the guys you're going to give the most reps to, but you're also just losing kind of like your main you, – you've now downgraded to 
flyers almost. I think that's something that has kind of like, as we saw the Colgate game that became a little bit more unsure and should not be like a slight negative, but definitely a concern is that running back room after Allen, that the two, three, four spots are going to be ones to watch for, see if anybody can solidify themselves. Yeah, that, that, that feels, that feels about right. And I, I am going to continue to be concerned about the running back room uh, on the defensive side of the ball, you know, Christian talked about uh, stuffing the run. Uh, that's going to be important. Um, the The other part of this game is that uh, Western Michigan, uh, their offensive line is not what you would think it should be for, you know, traditionally what they are. Um, they've got a sophomore quarterback in Jack uh, Solopek. Uh, he played a bunch or he played a little bit last year through for a thousand yards in um 2022 on 212 attempts uh 2023 he's the starting quarterback and i would really like to see some pressure like obviously we'd like to see the front seven um stuff the run a bunch that's what western mission is going to try to do but i'd also like to see um uh some some you know pressuring the quarterback i think we saw that a lot against colgate because their offensive line was really overmatched, and we talked about the pressure. Um, but Western Michigan is going to be a good test of a team that will have a little bit of game film. They know what Syracuse is going to come out and do now with the multiple looks and the stacking the box. Um, but how does Syracuse adapt to the game plan? How do they add more layers to that? Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that this new Rocky Long system really allows the defensive line to just kind of take up a lot of space. It didn't really require them to have to get into the backfield a whole lot, except on obviously running plays. And I'm hoping that that can be a trend that can continue. Like we saw Marlo Wax sneak through the A gap multiple times on time blitzes. That is a very new wrinkle. And it's something that I would like to, if that's going to be something we do all year long, teams are going to get wise to it and they're going to start countering with harder counts and they're going to start messing around uh, and try to draw the orange off sides. I, I, I want, I would assume that Western Michigan is going to try to do that early and I want to see how the orange respond. And par partially a reason for that also is because wax is more of a natural, you know, rush the quarterback type of player and not like Michael was who Michael was uh, very, very uh, set up to be a middle linebacker because he was basically a QB spy on every single play. And maybe they want to develop Wax into that because he's in the middle linebacker. Maybe not because of all, like you said, Andy, the time day gap rushes that we saw. But in, in the same way, that can only also be good because, again, it opens the things up for Leon Lowry and Derek McDonald and then hopefully Stefan Thompson. Um, we even saw Austin Roon get on the action a little bit as well. So, like, these... The, this linebacker room is got a little bit more depth than I think we gave it credit for. Like, as we said throughout the entire preseason, this is a very top-heavy Syracuse team. And so this was also a very good game for from Colgate, from, from the Colgate game, just to see the depth pieces and how they worked. And I think you would expect that you'll get another opportunity to see that against Western Michigan. Especially on defense, real quick, the last two matchups. Obviously, this is not the same Western Michigan team from – 2018 2019 but they did score 42 and 33 points so you're hoping that do we are that is syracuse going to shut out western michigan probably not 
but can they get to keep him to under 21, hopefully under 14? Like, that probably be ideal. So defense will definitely be something to watch for easily this game compared to the offense. Yeah, I, I'm trying to prevent myself from getting my hopes up too high here. <laughs> um, I, I guess hey, we're, that... we're baseball fans. Remember, we overreact after the first game. Yes, and Andy, I'm the optimist. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah, and, and I've I again, I'm out on the limb here. I have been saying that I think that this is a team that can win, you know, eight eight games this season. And this, uh, what we saw on Saturday, did nothing to tell me otherwise. I guess, I guess, then you know, a great way to kind of wrap this whole thing up is that as we, um, I, I the real, the, I have made it abundantly clear. My uh, my opinions on what this team can do have changed. I think that this the season there is an opportunity for things to go really well if they stay healthy. Um, for either of you, based off of your preseason predictions going into you know week two, do you either of you guys have adjusted expectations and or hopes? based off of how uh, this game went? I want to say yes, but I'm going to be cautiously, cautiously cautious. I know that was a lot of words, singing words in a row. <laughs> um, for those who don't know, I predicted six and six. I was very, very close to, to throwing the comments of our article on newsposition.com into a daze by putting five and seven. I was this close. Um it, it, and I guarantee you a lot of people would have been, what are you doing? Um, and I kept it civil for those of you guys in the comments. You're welcome. Um, the losses that I had put down, like I, I think for everyone here, it's pretty simple that we have the same four losses in Clemson, Florida State, UNC, and Pitt. Like we have all four of those games as losses. The other two games I had as losses were Virginia Tech and Wake Forest. And the seventh loss that I was going to say what put them at five and seven was the Purdue game. Now, obviously, given Purdue's performance in week one, you kind of shift that to, okay, you're probably more thinking six and six. Um, Then you start being more cautiously optimistic because – Again, you don't know how Syracuse is going to look down the rest of the season. Again, like you said, Andy, barring injuries, um, you know, know if Dino Babers has figured out how to get the team to not fully relax after the bye and, you know, get them right back into shape. Um, hopefully Syracuse has players to play against Wake Forest. Um, and if they do, hopefully they can do the fundamentals better than Wake Forest because – like I said a couple of weeks ago, it always seems like Wake Forest does the fundamentals a little bit better than Syracuse does. So if you can fix those and show the consistency that you showed against Colgate, Steno always says consistently good, not occasionally great, then you start to inch more towards that 8-4 and four record that a lot of fans are predicting. At least on my end, I came in – both predicting both for the theoretical week of predictions and as well as my final predictions at seven and five, I think I'm going to stick with it. It is not to say that this team cannot go eight and four or even better. I think eight and four is probably the perfect mark that most fans have. And then if not seven and five, when you look at it, that Purdue game looks a lot less like a toss of and more like 
kind of 60-40, like should be able to get that job done at, at, on the road. And that would be a really good game on NBC, just a good quality win to get to 4-0. I still think there are going to be question marks in the second half of the year. Can the Orange come back and win that Virginia Tech game after three straight losses against the best three teams arguably in the conference? Are they going to be motivated enough and have the will for that Wake Forest game? The pick game is going to be a loss. You might have to just set, like kind of like settle that in. At least for me, I had – Virginia Tech, Pitt, and then that trio of Clemson, Florida State, and UNC as my losses. But I think the rest of these games, especially the Georgia Tech and BC games, I think those look promising. So that already in itself gives me a 6-6 six and six floor. And then if one of those other outcomes, especially you look at Virginia Tech or Wake Forest, one of those two, I think that's where you can get to 7-5. and five. So I'm going to stick with it for now. But as Christian said, I think you can slightly raise your optimism meter a little bit higher. Yeah, I think this is going to we're we're getting into some fun times here. I'm uh I'm I'm liking where this is going. I'm I'm feeling pretty good about the orange and about how things are working, so that's always dangerous, but uh yeah, I'm uh I think we should all feel a little bit better after after this week uh how things have gone and can continue to feel pretty good about where things are going here. Um which is a weird thing to say. But it's incredibly true. <laughs> but how do you feel uh, about the conference and well, where it's going from here? <laughs> yeah, that's the the the, the burying the lead here. Uh, <laughs> literally, after we recorded the last episode, uh, there was a bit of news that broke where the ACC starting next season is going to become the all-coastal conference. Kidding, kidding, kidding. They're still going to be called the ACC. Don't know if they're keeping the Atlantic, uh, but they will be adding Stanford, Cal, and SMU. Um, My feeling on this is pretty straightforward, where this was needed to be done. Um, If the ACC dropped below a certain threshold of teams, the grant of rights could be broken open and renegotiated with ESPN, Uh, This basically ensures that if Florida State, Clemson, and North Carolina do leave, uh, the ACC keeps the numbers where they're at and they don't have to worry uh, about the grant of rights getting broken open and the conference going the way of the Pac-12. So it's self-preservation, but it does feel like self-preservation at its worst because none of these schools really make any sense Stanford and Cal make sense on an academic standpoint, but they're in California, um, which I would like to remind everybody is nowhere near the Atlantic coast. That's a little bit of a far journey. (laughs) It's only five hours. I, I, I guess if, if this is real, and I guess this is going to be part of what we're going to see over the next um, couple of days it sounds like most of the opposition to this is from the non-football sports, which makes a ton of sense, uh, but not necessarily for the travel purposes. It's a lot of recruiting. Uh, Stanford and Cal are both tremendous athletic departments at things not involving football or basketball. Um, although, especially, in the case Stan- especially that three out there. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine that, you know, women's soccer is exactly th- or men's soccer is exactly thrilled that you're adding two programs that have historically performed very well uh in soccer to the conference uh it it does feel like once you start going down the list of all of the sports many of which Syracuse does not participate in um but this is basically adding in the 
hardest level of competition and now asking these programs like, oh, by the way, you have to go travel out there once, you know, at least once a year um, and and go to California and have this terrible, uh, not a terrible road trip, but have a very long road trip um, against a very good opponent that is now you're going to see year after year. It sounds like one of the things they're doing to attempt to mitigate that, at least for some of the Olympic sports, is to have SMU in Dallas be kind of like a middle ground for these schools and maybe have like some multi-day tournaments there just to get a bunch of games in against, you know, some of the other schools. Um, and they'll at least do that for cross country. At least I know that. Uh, but like, that's probably one of the reasons why they also added SMU is to have Matt Texas middle ground that you could theoretically use as well as Dallas. I mean, so no reason why, he should have considered Dallas as a footprint in the first place, but you know, given recent college football moves, now you had to consider it. And so it's it had to be done in a football sense. Let's put it that way. In order to keep up with the moves that were made by the rest of the of the now big three conferences and that's in the SEC, Big Ten and Big 12. In order to keep up with those conferences, the ACC had to do something in order to stay relevant. And so this was the move. Now, however, like you said, Andy, there were aspects of it that still don't make sense, especially when it comes to every other sport. I, w- I would chime in real quick that that's probably the biggest question mark that Kevin, Mike and I had when we did kind of our instant reaction is going to be, is this, so no reporting, I guess, has indicated that it's only a football only partnership. So it sounds like they're going full through with like the other sports going to participate. Are we doing like a travel down there? Like once a year, it's one, like one of men's basketball and men's football goes down to Stanford or Cal and vice versa. So travel is going to be a big concern, but I think when you look at the bigger picture, I think a lot of people, at least a good majority, are saying that the ACC kind of, in a sense, needed to get this done. Because even if it wasn't the hottest names necessarily, you still get schools that can fill in the gaps and keep the ACC alive. And that sounds like that was the goal for this deal was to just we, they doing something was better than doing nothing, even if the something wasn't as monumental as some of the other realignment moves. I think the big elephant in the room is going to be the not who voted yes for bringing in SMU, Cal, and Stanford, but who didn't because you've got Clemson, Florida State, and UNC who are your top three, you know, trying to get out of here teams probably right now if you're doing a power ranking. And who knows, based off especially Florida State being – based off the rumors of them trying to basically go through the legal nightmare, it seems like, of wanting to ask out maybe five years from now, the question of whether this move actually is – sustainable to keeping the ACC alive or just shuffling the, t- the chairs around the Titanic, I think is going to be something we will look back on kind of half a decade from now, once we get closer to the grant of rights still expiring in 2036. Yeah, I, I there's, it, it does feel as if we are in like, this was obviously the move, but it also feels as if, um, it is kind it is kind of interesting that's that's what i'll say is that i think that there's still going to be a lot of moves that might happen um not necessarily in the like adding more schools but in the way of 
we need to figure out how to make this sustainable because right now it very much is not sustainable, but you need to keep it in order to make sure that um, you don't end up uh, in a situation where when Clemson and um, you know, uh, Clemson and and Florida state leave for whatever reason, even though they, you know, they might not, they might stay, but they obviously would like to leave the conference. Um, You need to protect yourself. And this move is protecting them. It's just a matter of how much is that protection going to cost? And the answer is, I don't think anybody really knows right now. Yep. (laughs) We could talk real live and for four hours if we wanted to, because there's so many angles to this. That's the that's the bottom line. It gets crazier by the day with yeah. the news. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Oh, I it, it all feels it all feels rather. Um, yeah, as Andy as Andy just showed, it's also exhausting to talk about this for just <laughs> ten minutes. It's just because we're beyond. I I think. It's, it's weird because we 10 years ago was when Pitt and Syracuse moved to the ACC. And Pitt and Syracuse moving to the ACC did make sense in the idea that from an academic footprint, from a cultural footprint, from a sports footprint, them moving to the ACC fit. Uh, Maryland and Rutgers getting added to the Big Ten, even though it was weird, like still kind of fit. Like you're going for giant state schools that want to be football first and and everything else can kind of figure itself out later. Um, All of those moves and all those realignment things at least worked in the sense that uh, the school is joining a larger conference that still fits the core values, but the sec adding Texas and Oklahoma um, is probably the last logical move. And even then, like, it's a stretch to say that adding those two schools make any sense. And from there, obviously, we've seen the Big Ten go completely coastal. Um, We've, you know, the SEC is probably not done adding eventually. But this is, this is all just at the point now where we are beyond making sense. It's all about self-preservation. And that stuff, you know, that stuff sucks. Like, it, it just straight up sucks. Yep. Uh, wow, what a great way to end this show. Uh, <laughs> everything sucks. <laughs> everything sucks. Um, I, for one, no. welcome our new Overlords TV contracts. That's basically what this is. Yeah, unless the whole thing implodes before the grain of rights is over. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, uh, that's it for this week's show. Dom, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate you uh, jumping on to talk. Um, football this week talking week one obviously follow dom over at noonsmagician.com a lot you'll see his coverage all season long uh and we're really grateful that he can jump on and and talk football with us while steve is hiding out somewhere uh in a tent is is my assumption um but christian and i will continue to be here talking football all season long uh we appreciate you for uh listening in on your podcast purveyor of choice, make sure that you like and subscribe, uh, follow, uh, make sure that you do that. So that way you can trick the AI into expanding the auto- the Ottoman empire. Uh, again, uh, if you're watching us on Twitch, if you're watching us on noonsmagician.com the next day, we appreciate the support. 
follow along for the video fun because you get to see all of our fun facial reactions as things go. Fubar this week was positive, but I'm sure that there will be other things that get us frustrated that aren't realignment talk. Um, and as always, uh, thank you to the fans first sports network and to home field apparel, uh, making this show happen. We've got some tremendous things coming up with both partners for the rest of the season. Uh, guys, the Syracuse orange football team is one and Oh, things are looking good. Go orange. Go orange. Go orange.